1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sydney, your host on the channel. And today I have Professor Daniel Agbibwa here to talk about his new book, which is called Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgencies The Roots of Terror in an African Context. Um, Daniel is an assistant professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Before joining the Harvard faculty, he was an assistant professor of conflict analysis and resolution at George Mason. Um, and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House under the research theme "Global Shifts: Urbanization, Migration, and Climate Change." He earned his PhD from University of Oxford uh, as a Queen's Queen Elizabeth House Fellow and an MPhil in Development Studies from Cambridge. He is also a research and uh, his research and teaching focuses is on how state and non-state actors and um, forms of order and authority interpret. Penetrate and shape each other, and the specialization of material materialization of power, mobility, um, and politics in contemporary African cities. He's the author of "They Eat Our Sweat: Transport, Labor, Corruption, and Everyday Survival in Urban Nigeria," and "Mobilization, Mobility, and Counterinsurgency." Sorry, that's mobility, mobilization, and counterinsurgency. The routes of terror in an African context. To our audience, I apologize. I should have slept last night. um <laughs> He's also co-authored a number of other books. For those of you who aren't academics, he's basically killing Anyways, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for being here. Why
2: don't you just start us off by telling us why you wrote this book? So, to, what's the story behind the story? Thank you, Sydney. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to be to be here and to talk about this book. Well, why did I write this book? Uh, I grew up uh, in Lagos, which is uh, Nigeria's commercial capital and Africa's largest uh, metropolis. And um, I was uh, often struck by the intensity of everyday life, particularly the intensity of the public transport sector and the whole politics and political economy uh, surrounding it. Um, In particular, I was struck by the level of violent extortion that took place uh, on the roads at checkpoints and roadblocks and junctions. Uh, for my doctoral dissertation at Oxford, I studied the links between uh, street level or everyday corruption uh, and the high level corruption, the political corruption that takes place uh, uh, um, you know at the elite elite level and I was particularly uh, interested in the micropolitics, uh, the relationships between uh, transport union touts, uh, or brokers uh, and transport operators who were often uh, on the margins uh, of the state and saw themselves as victims of of, of these unions and of uh, street-level bureaucrats like the police. So I came into this research uh, on mobility mobilization and counterinsurgency having uh, done this work uh, on everyday corruption uh, in the uh, popular transport sector. Um, so having a fresh eyes to look at conflict, in particular through the lens of mobility and transport, was something that I benefited from um, my doctoral dissertation. And so that was how I came to, I guess, study um, the relationship between mobility and conflict in northeast Nigeria, where uh, the Boko Haram has been raging on since 2009. Uh, I started to wonder why... Um, actors social actors that were closest to what was going on you know the the motorcycle commercial motorcyclists um the long distance uh truckers um why why their views were too often marginalized from the literature um because you know the first time i went to uh, my degree which was the the bed place and heartland of the insurgency um i spoke with taxi operator the the taxi driver that actually took me from the airport to my residential area in wulari um he you know he told me he started to talk about insurgency and his experience and i wanted you know i was struck by the amount of detail uh and amount of direct experience that he had about insurgency Uh, and so that got me really thinking about um this untapped what you might call subjugated knowledge um, that is that, that that nonetheless has a lot to teach teachers about the origins of the insurgency. And as I dug deep, I realized that the insurgency actually had uh, was shaped by transport. You know, the rise of the insurgency itself has a lot to do with the politics of transportation, the politics of corruption, of extortion, and inequality that I had experienced. Uh, in southwest Nigeria, in Lagos, um, and so this was the beginning of mobility, mobilization, and counterinsurgency to try to uh, understand a conflict through the lens of what moves and what doesn't, uh, what is stuck, uh, um, uh, and, and to look at that relationship between the social and the physical, which mobility allows us uh, to do. Um, so this was really the the motivation, uh, and as I dug deeper again, I realized that even in the literature on mobility, too often the focus is on migration, uh, whereas mobility is much more um, migration and displacement, whereas mobility, uh, the everyday mobility, the ones that people encounter on a daily basis are too often shunted to the margins. Um, So this was again something that was keen to document the micro politics of mobility in a context of terror. And this was perfect because Mobility is also that space that allows the state and the non-state to interact. You know, it sort of blurs that boundary between the state and, and the non-state, between the formal and the informal, the legal and the illegal, that is so often in academic literature separated. Um, so again, mobility became not just an, uh, a subject, but also a means through which I studied uh, the conflict. So it became a methodology, as it were. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit later on about the mobile ethnography that I yeah no this 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 comes through
1: really clearly so just setting the scene for our audience who like unlike you and me are probably not all peace researchers um just taking a guess because there aren't 5 peace researchers in the world unfortunately um <laughs> what you you make a claim early in the book that sort of mobility has been really overlooked by peace research and you've laid out this claim a little bit Can you do you have an idea about why it's been overlooked and sort of also conflict has been overlooked by mobility scholars sort of like, why do you think it is that it was in 2022 that someone was like, I should put these together? This will be super productive, because when you look at the final product, it seems obvious. Clearly, it wasn't obvious or someone would have done it before, but like sort of like, why did it get overlooked and sort of like, yeah, what are you hoping that this opens up?
2: Yeah, no, this is a great question. I, As you were talking there, I was thinking about the, the words of uh, um, the late Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe, who talked about how he's found that the most simplest things are the most difficult things for even the smartest uh, uh, people. And you're right, mobility is everywhere, and yet it is nowhere in the conflict literature. <laughs> um, and perhaps maybe um, one of the issues here is that the... We 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 have been sort of we have studied on that a sort of a um, a philosophy that demarcates right a philosophy that puts people into dis- disciplinary boundaries again disciplinary which is meant to discipline people into particular fields of study and what that does is that it prevents us from answering some of the the key questions in today's world questions of conflict questions of climate change that that resist uh disciplinary boundaries. Indeed, the questions that our students that learners today are asking are not questions that are easily uh uh figured out through uh, a disciplinary lens. Um and so I think this is one of the reasons why mobility scholars have sort of been in their own um world and 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 conflict scholars have sort of been in their own world even though in reality these worlds sort of bleed into each other especially in a terrain in a terrain of of of, of conflict uh, or uh, emergency you know I was just I've just been reading about uh the flooding writing something about the flooding that is taking place in Nigeria and I've been realizing the ways in which streets immediately were overtaken by water and became lakes and and people uh, creatively uh, constructed wooden boats which they used to transport, Uh, uh, people uh, to safety. Uh, So mobility is always such a central aspect of crisis, any crisis. But unfortunately, it is too often separated, and I think part of the problem is that sort of disciplinary lens through which we like to study issues that makes us kind of comfortable. We're not comfortable with blurring boundaries, which is what mobility does. And this is surprising um, because the lens of mobility helps us get closer to understanding uh, contemporary politics um, than perhaps any other frame, I would argue. You think about youth in Africa, for example, and even in the US, uh, they tend to define themselves through the idioms of of mobility or the sense of being stuck, of having nowhere to go. And you also know that mobility can sometimes map onto the frustration of not moving well from being a youth to an adult. Uh, Poverty and inequality can be mapped from who can move and who cannot, uh, who feels stuck, who does not. Uh, You can also throw in the gendered lens uh, to that narrative. So mobility is very capacious and generative uh, as a lens for studying it. But I think too often we are comfortable in our own sort of disciplinary um spaces that that even issues that are similarly situated uh we are not able to do that uh we prefer to social distance as it were uh and this is this i think is a problem because the issues of today of today's world are not issues that are easily um you know tackled from one any one lens They are issues that need an interdisciplinary angle and mobility offers us a way forward it 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 really does. Um, I, I I was struck as I was
1: reading through this book with, first of all, the way that you really like got down to the idioms that people use to describe sort of who moves and who doesn't. We have like notions of certain types of elite groups as jet setting, um, and sort of we have all of the politics, particularly in academia, among people who, generally speaking, can move and can move rather freely. Sort of about whether we should stop flying because of climate change, and this idea is so deeply tied to our understandings of our place in the world is our ability to move and the fact that we can do this sort of as some way of creating a specific type of person. It, it was an extremely generative generative book and way to look at something. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, so you've talked a little bit about why uh, mobility is overlooked by peace researchers. So let's get down to sort of the, the case study and the mobile ethnography you do, sort of you spend a huge amount of time and it's really, really beautiful. I I encourage our listeners to read the book um, talking about the lives of transport workers in in Nigeria. And one of the things that struck me, and this might be because you referenced some anthro literature that I'm just not super familiar with, is how you linked mobility, like physical mobility can move through space to mobility temporally, the ability to sort of like become an adult. Um so your subjects here aren't just physically constrained or physically stuck. Um they're they're actually like sort of in some ways socially stuck. And you really link this because I think that this is this is kind of one of the the key the key things that I got out of the book. So would you just walk
2: our audience through sort of the link between these things and kind of how you got to it? Absolutely and and then maybe I begin from how I got to it because these were um, there were theoretical um, giants who sort of influenced my my, my thinking and these I mean one of whom was uh, the social theorist um, Michel Foucault uh, who talks about visibility being a trap uh, and you think about um, uh, um, also the, the scholars who sort have of argued that uh, we are sort of trapped in a society of the spectacle uh, and and we, we we are fascinated by what we see. We are fascinated by the spectacular, even as the spectral, um, that which is there and not there, often slips away from our grasp. Uh, but we know that um, in any society, uh, uh, politics itself is shaped not just by what is seen, what is visible, um, but also by what is invisible, what lies underneath. Indeed, in any crisis situation, even the experience of that crisis, is not just an experience of, um, say, dispossession or displacement, but it's also, um, there is an affective dimension to it. There's a psychological dimension to it. Uh, And so it's that relationship between the visible and the invisible, the resistance to the trap that visibility invites us into um is one that has sort of influenced how i have looked at mobility and mobility allows us to sort of uh, bring the physical and metaphysical into a conversation uh, and and this is the way in which people in particular describe their lives so in that sense then i was interested not just in the physical side of mobility which is for example the um the checkpoints the roadblocks uh, the extortion Um, and the frustration and anger that that surrounded that whole predatory politics, but also in the um, the social. In other words, how people experience um, subjectively mobility, uh, how people feel about their position in life, Uh, people's struggles, not just for economic survival, but also for social recognition in society. And this was something that mobility allowed me to sort of delve into. So i give you an example. In northern Nigeria, a, a man's social and marital status is, is closely and intimately related. So beca- becoming a man depends on the availability of resources to, to, to marry and to provide for one's dependence. So, so by keeping a household, a man acquires wealth in people, as it were, uh, and becomes a respectable uh, person in society. So one of the key groups that we attracted to Boko Haram, um, this uh, uh, jihadist group, um, were commercial motorcyclists. Uh, Commercial motorcyclists uh, is a practical occupation, what you might call an informal work, um, a work that is not recognized by the state, but nonetheless nonetheless constitutes the the backbone of transportation, transportation in many parts of Africa and the world really. Uh, so these, these, these operators were mostly young men uh, who you might call dirty workers, uh, people who were stigmatized and marginalized, people who were seen as worthless, having bad reputation. Um, these were, but, but, but they themselves did not see themselves in this sort of spectacular light. They saw themselves as um, struggling to survive like any other decent worker. Um, uh, and and deploying tactics and strategies for that survival so these were the young men that were initially drawn to to Boko Haram and and they were drawn to Boko Haram because they in their struggle for survival they often encountered the the predatory nature of the states they often encountered police officers on the road who would extort their hard-earned money who would but not just extort their hard-earned money who would insult them so they experienced the shame um the 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 sense that they were not man enough uh while navigating you know these roads but they were also very keenly aware of the inequality of society so they would take people to the wealthiest past path path of the, of, of the state but they would also take people to low income poor neighborhoods so they were starkly aware of the spatial dimension of poverty and, and the materialization of inequality at checkpoints and, and and powers without powerlessness. So these sort of set the scene for them when a group like Boko Haram came promising them dignity, promising them, um, you know, real material benefits. Um, they saw the opportunity through the Boko Haram insurgents, through the Boko Haram group, to become, um, to become really, to be seen in society, to become somebody important in society, to reclaim, their position as men in society and most of all most importantly to to get married and and, and, and acquire the status of adulthood. So these these, these young men um, one can look at them through both physical and social mobility. They, the motorcycle was the symbol, the physical symbol of their uh, of, of 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 their citizenship as it were. Um, But also it was through that physical symbol that they were able to attain the social aspect of adulthood. In other words, the recognition as human beings, the recognition as men and take their rightful place uh, in the community. So you see the ways in which the physical and the social interact in very powerful ways to shed light on, um, you know, what it means to be to be a person in a particular society, what it means to have roots in a particular society or to be a mere dangler in that particular society. So mobility allowed me to understand the relationship between those you may call the incorporated persons and those you you may call the non-incorporated persons in society and oftentimes um, what Boko Haram afforded to the non-incorporated persons, this young motorcyclist was an opportunity to be incorporated into society and to be considered important. Um, so this was this was really the power of mobility is that it reflects it, it it reinforces um, uh, power and powerlessness in society and through the lens of mobility you can understand inequality and people struggle to attain um, not just physical but also social um, social recognition.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Awesome. Um, I think that just segues us in as we're sort of like walking through the things that you wrote about, Would you sort of, talk a little bit about the motorcycle law that was passed in 2009 and how this sort of led to a, what we politely call the literature an uptick
2: in violence <laughs> No I mean it's it's striking again yeah this is another instance of such a, a banal um you know law such a banal situation escalating into um, a total war really um you think about what has a motorcycle helmet got to do with what is now regarded as one of the um deadliest insurgency uh yeah. in the world uh well a lot a lot really uh because uh, as i said the backbone of the program insurgency were really commercial motorcyclists who um who had so much knowledge local knowledge of 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 the space they inhabited because they took people to every nook and and, and, and every aspect of uh, every every part of of that particular state so they were very knowledgeable people um even though they were stigmatized at the same time by society uh, and what happened was that they were often um in direct contact with uh corrupt state uh officials and particularly police officers traffic inspectors and the likes um in the Program members. Then, um, so how the motorcycle helmet law um, um, uh, conflict happened was that uh, in 2009, um, Nigeria sort of introduced um, motorcycle helmet. Uh, well, the the official stories it was introduced for protection of uh, motorcyclists and their passengers and everybody was mandated to to wear you know helmets whether you were a motorcyclist or you were a passenger but the uh, the other, the informal story is that there were uh, tensions between Boko Haram and the um you know political leaders uh in Borno state which was uh, the the heartland of the insurgency at the time so this Helmet law was also instrumental, politically instrumental for the government. was a way of um, of putting Boko Haram, as it were, into uh, in its place. Uh, but Boko Haram members were uh, predominantly Muslim, uh, and many of them refused to wear helmets because it was against their religion. But there was also a very practical dimension to this refusal, in the sense that they just could not afford the the helmet. Um, um, the, the helmet cost about $29 in, in a country where more than 70% of the people survive on less than $1 a day. So this is just not affordable. Um, um, so the issue became a flashpoint that would uh, morph into a face-off between Boko Haram and, uh, and on the one hand and corrupt and trigger-happy uh, state security forces on the other hand. Uh, and it came to a head uh, on this particular day when 17 members uh, were shot and injured by um, by uh, security forces. Um, so that was a way of looking at how uh, transport regulations uh, and the manner of the enforcement were very much part of the transformation of the Boko Haram insurgency itself, uh, because this proved in many ways to be the turning point. This did not begin Boko Haram, but in many ways, they had a key role to play in the escalation of that conflict, uh, because things went, um, things, things took a turn for the worse after this, uh, after this uh, flashpoint, and the reluctance of the state itself to apologize for what happened, for the injustice that happened, um, and obviously, uh, Boko Haram would would move from uh, a group of angry young men into a full blown insurgency after this event.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think that's a good segue because everywhere in this book is state violence um and even in the places like in in written literature where you would expect the most which is peace research you often don't hear as much about state violence as you would expect um but I'm 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 just really interested if you could talk a little bit to our readers about these sort of like systems of petty state violence. I think you've written about them in other places and you definitely write about it here. Sort of like how they work, how they link sort of all the way up and all the way down in society. You can talk about recent movements. I know that during the Black Lives Matter movement worldwide, there was a large like sort of like group in Nigeria who were against a specific sort of or like sort of that was about police violence sort of like in all of all of these types of systems in Nigeria and really sort of like Give our
2: audience that picture that you give in the book. Absolutely. And this is, again, one of the power of mobility because I said earlier, mobility allows us to see that broad boundaries between the state and the society. Um, And through the lens of mobility, then one is able to pay attention to not just, um, you know, because mobility is about relationality. So one is able to pay attention, not just to the weaker aspect of the relationality, the non-state, um, but one can pay attention to the state itself so in that in that sense then because of the lens of mobility i'm focusing not just on boran violence but i'm looking at how state violence and state actions or inactions also triggered these uh, insurgency and one of the one of the spaces where you can that, where state violence is most eye-catching, uh is this the space of transport uh transportation is the very um you know illustration of state violence the way in which it is organized the ways in which it is controlled uh the way in which uh, uh people in this sector are extorted by officers of authority um, this is the definition of violence. And often it's not just violence as in physical violence. It's often the threat of violence that, that exists, that, that is enough to to, to sort of exploit uh, people on the margins of the state. So state violence was central to the rise of the Boko Haram insurgency. As I said earlier, most members of Boko Haram were... Um, commercial motorcyclists and these commercial motorcyclists already had a grievance towards the state because of the way in which the state would often extort their hard-earned money and 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 they felt that this was an injustice on the part of the state uh, and they, um, but but they had nowhere to go to then and many people that I spoke to would say something like you know they collect a hard-earned money what else can I do to whom else can I go to I just Leave it for them and report to God. That's often what they say, but not not no longer. When when Boko Haram came into the scene, they began to see that there were ways in which they could really challenge this violence of of the state, and so um, they were no longer satisfied with voicing their discontent within the architecture of the state. Instead, they exited the system altogether uh, and launched uh, um, and and sought to to find uh, another. Another state, really, uh, in the form of the Sharia, the Sharia state, Sharia governed uh, state. So, in that sense, then you one can see Boko Haram as well. One can see it in spectacular fashion as a terrorist group, but on a more spectral level, one can see Boko Haram as a critique of a state that doesn't work for the people, as a critique of a predatory state, a state that never treats people as people, uh, a state that works for itself. Uh, and this is where perhaps uh, a movement, social movements like Black Lives Matter and answers come into the scene because they are also movements, not just against the spectacular violence of the state, but they are also movements against that spectral dimension. The, that, the, the, that whole, for example, question about why, um, you know, money is invested in prisons uh, rather than in schools, uh, uh, but also in Nigeria as well, um The movement against police brutality moved quickly from a physical direct violence that took place again on the road uh, um, when police officers uh, sort of um, you know uh, extorted money from this unknown uh, victim and left 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 him by the roadside uh, and, and looked uh, and escaped with his uh, SUV. So, so again, the road is a flashpoint of of violence, but but the point making then is that it's, but the road is just it allows us to start that conversation to move from the physical to the more spectral. So initially it was to end SARS, which was this special anti robbery squad, but quickly those voices morphed into ending bad governance, ending um the naturalized naturalization of young people as criminals. Uh so again it moved very quickly into the spectral dimension as well, showing the relationship between the physical and the social. So in that sense then we have seen great movements of our time recognizing that the state is at the very heart, heart of um um the um is is at the very heart of the uh Marginalization and the uh, and and the um, stigmatization of large sections of the population, but they also recognize that the state is not some homogeneous entity, uh, but the state is quite diffuse, uh, and and so they are able to link the state to um, global capitalism that 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 um, that undoes, uh many lives and and just literally exhausts. The body of of of, of many people, um, and so what we see here is uh, the ways in which uh, the states really accumulate uh, by 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 dispossessing um, the poorest people in society. But we also see uh, a, a group of people. We, we see two 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 groups, right? We see in in Boko Haram and in the NCIS movement. We see a group that it has gotten tired of voicing their dissatisfaction within the architecture of the state and have decided now to fight back through another means, which is to exit the state altogether to try to displace it violently. In the NCIS movement, on the other hand, we see a, a group that criticizes state violence, but also recognizes that um, the ways in which police officers as well are what you might call, what one scholar calls subalterns of the state, the ways in which they are also victims of uh, poor salaries from the state so they are calling for the the disbandment of the special anti robbery squad which is a police unit within the nigeria police force but they're also calling for improved working conditions for the wider police sector so they're demonstrating the need for better policing rather than posturing you know Um, but on the other hand in black lives matter we're seeing increasing voices that are now tired entirely with this police system and perhaps a recognition that the police would not change and so they are calling altogether for um, an abolition of the police establishment as we know it. Um, so, so we are seeing these different reactions to the manifestation of state violence in both its physical and social form, with some uh, voicing their dissatisfaction within the state and others exiting the state altogether, and 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 uh, supporting a sort of a violent um, displacement of these of this institution. So what mobility again does is that it allows us to see all these various uh, nuance. It's not one sort of a one-way story, you know, it's a more complex story. And even the actors involved, you know, ranges from middle-class youth to, you know, youth who are seen as, you know, the the wretched of the earth, you want to use that Fanonian term um so it, it it blends it's also intergenerational as well so it brings a range of people together uh are uh, 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 congregating around the issue of um of of stockerness of a situation that is no longer working for the majority of people and people um and w- what spectacular violence does is that it gets us to a point where people say enough is enough um enough is enough after answers enough is enough after the motorcycle helmet law that, you know, and the flashpoints that led to the uh, uh, injury to 17 members of the group. So again, but we cannot be trapped in that visibility. We cannot be trapped that we have to move into the social as well and to see how that interacts. So this is the ways in which we begin to see mobility very much related to not just conflict, but also agency, the capacity for action that is being displayed by a range of people across across the world. Um, awesome. So,
1: I guess one thing that sticks out stuck out to me reading through this book is the literature cited in it. Sort of like the discussions in it, the way you talk about it is is not unique to Northeast Nigeria. You begin here talking about sort of like how you got this this idea to do this ethnography, living in in Lagos. Um, you cite a lot um, discussions about, I believe it was Ghanaian sort of like transport workers right um y- you quite often sort of make claims that are rather sweeping about sort of like being a youth or sort of stuckness among african youth writ large and sort of as i'm reading this i'm thinking well these are some rather sweeping claims and then i'm thinking about it and, and it's clear this isn't an accident um so sort of explain to our to our audience sort of how it is that that looking at northeast at northeast nigeria and doing sort of like an ethnography here, what this what this can tell us, and what this this micro study of mobility or regional study of mobility can tell us about about a sort of both insurgency, about violence, about agency, what what it can tell us that sort of allows you to substantiate these these claims, these discussions about about a continent or about a world, um, which which you do make these claims, sort of like how is it that we're able to go from from sort of like you know. You have a picture from sitting at a train station to being able
2: to say something about about a social space or about a larger social space. Absolutely, and that's a great question. And um, even this book, even though this book focuses on Northeast Nigeria and more broadly the Lake Chad Basin, the concept of mobility, the concept, the concept of being stuck, of 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 entrapment, of. Of um state violence, they extend um you know beyond far beyond um the borders of Nigeria um um and you know I teach a course here at Harvard uh on uh on youth uh and one of the experiences one of one thing I've learned is the ways in which the way uh, the ways in which the de- Self narrations of young people about their condition, you know, connect uh, very, uh, very, very nicely to uh, what is happening uh, elsewhere uh, in 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 Nigeria. So, so this is really really interesting uh, to see the language of 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 mobility itself as being a universal language, uh, and Nigeria does not have uh, any kind of it's not sui generis it's Nigeria. It's not unique to the space in, in Nigeria. Um, but also the way the instrumentality of mobility in conflict is also something that is not unique to Nigeria. We know that uh, in Central African Republic, in Mali, in Liberia, in Colombia, in Palestine, in Afghanistan, in Sri Lanka, issues of mobility and immobility are front and center in the conflicts that are taking place there. Uh, unfortunately, scholars too often uh, do not see this issue that is so routine so they ignore what is obvious uh most obvious in the conflict which is the arrangement of of checkpoints uh, and control uh and, 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 and checkpoints and control by security forces so so this is um this is this is such an important uh, aspect uh, uh, that I wanted to draw out to show ways in which insurgency itself is rooted in, in 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 mobility. Awesome, you do this really well. I think one of my like favorite little anecdotes
1: that I had never thought about until now was you talk about and it's not even from Africa. It's from um, it's from the Arabian Peninsula. You talk about how the I want to say the early sort of. Muslim Brotherhood, who are, I believe it was who were fighting against sort of the early Al Saud family, thought that the that that sorry cars were evil. You're like no wonder they thought they were evil. These were the form of mobility being used to make counterinsurgency possible, and that was like a light bulb moment for you. Like no wonder they thought that these things were up. Clearly they didn't like them. Like this is this was the essence of, of sort of, of of state counterinsurgency. It, it was it was a really Excellent example that's sort of like tied between them.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. You know these, these, these. Are sub- mobility itself imbued into mobility subversion. Right, uh, the state is terrified of of, of mobile workers. Mobility. <coughs> Excuse me. Even the space of mobility, uh, the railway stations, for example, were historically spaces where unions we will will. You know, coagulate, and and where uh, people who were seen as enemies of the state would would meet uh, to concord their plans, and so 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 spaces of mobility were always tightly surveilled by the state because uh, these were seen as the, the the biggest threat to to state power and authority, uh, and so too with Boko Haram uh, because uh, its founder, Mohammed Yusuf. Uh, recruited many of his followers in and around the now uh, defunct railway station um so mobility is very central and in in you know in 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 palestine people talk about scholars talk about the imaginary line uh the line that is uh uh, you know, there and not there, and it's designed to make uh, 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 people fail, uh, to make people victims of the state. So, questions of mobility, if you probe deeper, you would quickly see uh, are central to many lives and many, many organizations, uh, as uh, scholars have pointed out. Uh, what is missing is that these narratives do not draw into the, the relational power of mobility to sort of connect this conflicts uh too often uh again perhaps maybe due to disciplinary uh, you know boundaries and also the incentives that are there for people to work within their own disciplines um um and the anxiety of 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 interdisciplinarity means that people don't see how these things connect and so one of the one of the aim of this book was to ensure that um you know especially in the conclusion that uh different conflicts from different parts of the world are pulled into this conversation and people can go away thinking you know what can i learn differently about this conflict when i look at it through the lens of mobility what can i learn about black lives matter and police brutality when i look at it through the lens of what takes place what takes place on the road at checkpoints at traffic stops um what can i learn about uh, climate change um, uh, and, and climate disasters that are happening uh, uh, in the world. When I look at the ways in which uh, infrastructures, transport infrastructures, uh, are constructed or not constructed, uh, where they are, where they are placed. Um, so these, these, Bambini offers you this fresh angle to look at something so banal. Something that has become so banal that it's it's sort of slipped into the spectrum. It's become invisible, but nonetheless continues to influence um, the politics of 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 everyday life.
1: Awesome, um, yeah. And so I will toss you the same softball question I promised I toss you, sort of, and you've really covered most of it. Sort of, but in like, is there anything else you would like our audience to take away? Or are there any like sort of key things that sort of like you conclude on that you're pointing to for future research that you really sort of want our listeners to like sort of, if you were, you know, writing an article and your advisor, you, you now are the advisor, sort of like tells you, you know, don't hide the conclusion, right? Like, put it right there, and make sure everyone walks away with it. Sort of like, what is it that you want our audience
2: to take home? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, earlier on, I probably p- promised to talk about the mobile ethnography. And one of the things I've learned from my combined research, whether that was on everyday corruption in the transport sector in Lagos or on the insurgency in northeast Nigeria, was that mobility was not just the focus of my study, it was the methodology as well. So usually I will, um, you know, I'll be in the front seat or in the back seat of the vehicle, talking to passengers or the driver about their experience, even as they went through um, these spaces, even as they went through checkpoints and experienced extortion. So I could tap into their feelings. I could smell the environment. I could touch what was going on. So mobility then, or what you might call mobile ethnography, was very central to, to experiencing the world of the driver or the conductor or the people that you're studying as they move through it. And this was something very vital for me. But also, many people who are big travellers will tell you that um, some of the biggest insights they've learned in context have come from very banal discussions with taxi drivers. Uh, so, so people, these, these actors have their hands on the pulse of what is going on. Um, so why not talk to them, find out their experiences in the situation, and you would be shocked about how much they know about not just what is going on, but how much creativity they have about how the situation that is going on can be resolved. Um, So even for policymakers, people who would watch this uh, 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 podcast, people who listen to this podcast um, um, who are not academics, but come at it from the angle of policymaking, I would say sometimes the solution already lies in the people that are there, uh, but are still rendered invisible. Talk to them. They have ideas about uh, decision-making processes that impact on their lives. Uh, so this is one of my biggest lessons to invite people, not just to focus on migration or mobility, but to also think critically about how this can be method, how this, uh, can be an approach for studying anything really. Uh, uh and so that, that's my invitation. Use, treat mobility as method. Awesome. Um,
1: it really comes through in this book. Um, I, I, I cannot recommend sort of our, our audience sort of go get this book, get your hands on a copy, get it at your library, order it online, do what you got to do just get the book, just do it. Um, but anyways, yeah. So our traditional last question is, what are you working on next? So I assume from looking at your sort of a, the fact that you have to you work at Harvard, which means you have to publish something. Uh, but also looking at the density of books coming out, you're probably not just going to go on a seven-year vacation. So what is it that you are currently working on next?
2: Yes. No, that's a great question. Um, so I am currently working on um, a book that looks at... Uh, another form of mobility, what you might call emotions. <laughs> um, so I am looking at the centrality of emotions and affect uh, to understanding uh, people's decision-making processes, but also people's survival survival tactics uh, in the context of conflict. Uh, in particular, I am looking at... Um, this group of young men and women known as the Civilian Joint Task Force who emerged uh, in the wake of the Boko Haram conflict, uh, but who who also experienced the state violence that we've been talking about, similar to the Boko Haram youth, but who have made a decision not to exit the states uh, and join Boko Haram, but to support state security forces that they themselves admit are indiscriminately violent uh, towards them um so this is this is something that I am uh uh eager to understand uh this puzzling decision to support the states that also uh, simultaneously uh, victimizes victimizes them and I argue in this book that to understand this complex, Uh, Decision one has to understand it through the lens of emotions. Emotions are capacious; they allow allow us to 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 see not just uh, the negativity, the negative side of emotions, emotions of um, dissatisfaction, but also emotions of positivity, positivity of hope. Uh, So these young people are hoping for uh, the state, despite uh um not have not been happy with the politics you know they never lose faith in the political and so this is something that i'm working on at the moment
1: um awesome and i hope when you finish that book um that you come on to talk to us um and so finally i asked you and i ask everyone to come with some sort of book recommendation essay recommendation honestly you can recommend a youtube video you laughed at last night give us something that sort of like our audience can can Read that is not besides this book. You're not allowed to recommend your own book. That would be tech.
2: <laughs> well, I can connect that to where I ended, uh, which is that I'm reading um, uh, Laura Bellant's book, The Late uh, Affect Theorist. Laura Bellant uh, has written a fascinating book called uh, Cruel Optimism. Uh, and the central idea of the book is really how, or it's trying to understand why people remain attached to is subject to an object that does damage to them, uh, that hurts them. Um, how do we explain this cruel optimism we see all around us? For example, why did the ENSYS youth in Nigeria continue to uh, support uh, a police establishment that they would admit has uh, defied every form of reform uh, and that manifest itself Really, as a violent entity, so much so that people never really go to the police for anything. Um, People are terrified of reporting any incident to the police. Why do we still? uh, Why does the idea of doing away with the police still frighten us so much? Why? What explains this cruel optimism? What explains, for example, this group that I'm now working on in this book? Their hope for the state, despite the state victimizing them. Um, and you can look at that also in the context of interpersonal relationships as well. Why do people stay in relationships that hurt them? Uh, so that's, that's a fascinating book that Laura Belant introduces us to. And, and I would invite, um, listeners to, to, to check it out. Awesome. Well, that, that wraps it up just on time. Thank you so much
1: for coming on the podcast. Um, that was one of the best interviews I've done. The book is Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgency The Routes of Terror in the African Context. My guest is Daniel Agbibwa. Um, I'm Sydney, um, signing off. Have a good one.